from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Hello, today is Thursday, April 30th, 2020. Today we're recording another installment in our special COVID-19 series on LabMind. Today's interview is on the topic of public health and public health reporting and the relationship of laboratories to public health reporting. But before we get into the topic, I need to set the present historical context for where we are in this pandemic today as we record this. So we're at the very end of April, so we're about four months into the global pandemic, if you start with when it broke out in China, but we're about two months into the U.S. version, so we're about six weeks into serious social distancing. I think we've learned a lot in the past six weeks. We've learned that social distancing can flatten the curve. I think we've also learned that it has to be really aggressive if you're going to actually get the case counts to start to drop off which I'm concerned are not really happening here in the state of Utah, but uh, some other states like Washington have been successful with that. But the bottom line is there's still a viral transmission going on in communities across the U.S., and we are in this marathon, and it's going to be a while before we come up with some real solutions for this. So in the meantime, governments are expressing a combination of what I would consider hope and desperation, hope that we're in a better position to control the viral spread, but also desperation to get the economy going. So we're going to be seeing a lot of experiments in the coming weeks with loosened restrictions, and we'll have to see how the public health responds and, and how able we are to get local outbreaks under control this time around. So it'll be really interesting. So in that spirit, I wanted to get Sam Marsden on the podcast. Sam has a background in public health and uh, wanted to talk about the relationship between laboratories and public health departments and public health reporting. So Sam Marsden is the compliance manager at AREP Laboratories. That includes a number of areas of responsibility, but obviously today we're going to be talking about public health reporting. Sam received his undergraduate degree here at the University of Utah, my alma mater, so I love that. Later got a Master of Public Administration from Brigham Young University. Prior to coming to AUP, he worked for the Utah Department of Health and the Utah County Health Department for a number of years in a number of different roles, including epidemiologist, environmental health scientist, and program manager. And he's also served as a trustee and later the president of the Utah Environmental Health Association. Sam, welcome to the LabMind podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Sam, now your role as compliance manager, as I just mentioned, covers a number of areas, but we really want to talk about public health reporting. My sense is that public health departments and public health agencies are not one of those things that most of the public knows a whole lot about. They mostly operate in the background. They don't call a lot of attention to themselves. But here in a pandemic, I think the public is becoming increasingly aware that they exist. So what can you tell us about public health departments, and particularly their role in infectious disease surveillance and control? Surveillance, it sounds like a pretty scary word, especially when it's the government doing it. (laughs) So just to clarify, obviously, I think we all know this, but it doesn't mean, you know, government agents are out there collecting information, reporting it back for analysis. Public health surveillance takes place on a generally pretty passive basis. So public health gets their data from a variety of different sources. The main one that we're concerned about at ARUP is electronic laboratory reporting. They also get data from syndromic data from the sales of OTC medications, for example. They get 
get data from physician offices and even more. For all of these activities, though, there are laws in place that allow the public health agencies to access the information that would otherwise be considered private. These laws are thoroughly considered and considered necessary for the good of the community. So a definition of public health surveillance, as defined by the CDC, as the ongoing systematic collection, analysis, and interpretation of health-related data essential to planning, implementation, and evaluation of public health practice. So to dissect that a little bit, you know, in order to know what public health issues are arising in a community, a public health agency needs good data. In my experience in public health for 15 years, you know, resources are scarce in those agencies. You know, it's always a struggle finding funding and figuring out how, what you're going to do. So it's really important to have good data to get sort of a good bang for your buck as far as funding goes. Back to your surveillance point mm-hmm. and the fact that that word has scary implications, particularly right. given, you know, the electronic kinds of surveillance that some countries can do. But maybe monitoring might be a word that might be more comfortable to the public. Yeah, I think that would. And that really is more of what it is. I'm guessing that our audience mostly knows this, but in case they don't, laboratories are required by law to report certain types of lab results to public health agencies. And it's not all lab results, but it's the ones of public health interests, like certain infectious diseases. Correct. And obviously that includes, you know, COVID-19. So the PCR test, the antibody test, all of those results are required to be reported. The second question I want to ask you about is the relationship between public health entities at the regional and state level and national. Because the CDC has been in the news a lot, you know, a lot of debate about CDC's role in this epidemic. But is it CDC that we're reporting to here or more regional level? With COVID-19, it's a little bit of a one-off. We are actually reporting some data to CDC. It's not individual patient case level data, but it's some sort of aggregated data, like, you know, how many tests are we running? How many positives are we getting? That sort of thing. In general, we don't report at anything to the federal government at all. The way the nation is set up is not an enumerated power in the Constitution, so the federal government doesn't really have a role in local public health, so it's mostly left up to the states. And those states come up, like you said, with certain laws that certain diseases are reportable. So how does that work with a laboratory like ARUP? Because we do lab testing for patients all across all 50 states. This is where public health reporting gets really fun. There are a lot of different requirements. Every state has their own list of diseases that they want reported to us. So we have to be pretty proactive in figuring out what that is so that we don't under-report and also that we don't over-report. I think we're probably going to talk about HIPAA a little bit later in this conversation. And there's really a fine line between reporting everything that the state wants, which is okay under HIPAA, but also not over-reporting and thereby giving out patient information that the states are not entitled to. So all of the reporting is driven by state public health laws. Correct. Can you give an example of maybe a state reporting requirement that's sort of idiosyncratic and different in one state versus all of the others? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is New York City. They require us to report A1C results. 
I'm not aware of really any other health department that's that's interested in that. So that's for diabetes patients and diabetes care? Correct. Yeah, it's for monitoring. We won't say surveillance. It's for monitoring of that. So the New York City Department of Health wants to keep tabs on how well the you know diabetic patients in their city are doing, presumably. They want to see if it's okay if not having large sodas is working. Yes. Um, back to uh, Mayor Bloomberg. Okay, so that's a chronic disease that is not infectious. Isn't most public health reporting infection-related? Most of it is. There are requirements in states for cancer reporting as well, and there are requirements for birth defects reporting. But by and large, it's infectious disease. And environmental things too, right? Like heavy metals. Yeah, such as blood lead and things like that. So things that public health agencies presumably are in a position to follow up on and do something in the community to address those things. That was actually my very first job in public health. I work in the blood lead program, and one of my responsibilities was getting lab results on big spreadsheets and entering them into our database. In your public health jobs, were you ever in the role of actually being one of the case investigators, or did you just sort of work with the folks that did that? Mostly I worked with the folks that did that, but there were some instances where I did follow up with patients on individual results. What kinds of things? Keep going. I would call patients on tuberculosis results mostly. And it was kind of interesting because it would range from how do you even know this information to, you know, sort of they were expecting a call from the health department. The public may not all know that a number of lab results are, you know, legally required to be reported to public health. Right. So I have a cousin who used to work for the, the Utah State Health Department, and it might actually be someone that you've met. But I know talking to him, he was in a role for a while where he was following up on uh, sexually transmitted infections. And that, that sounds like it'd be sort of an interesting job, uh, maybe a challenging job to call people to talk about data that they would presumably considered to be very private. Yeah, that definitely is a challenge, you know, and you obviously get people wondering, well, how do you even know this information? Why do you want to know all this private information? But, you know, public health professionals, they're they're trained in this. They do it day in and day out. They know how to be sensitive about these things. I read an article a couple of weeks ago. It was in relation to COVID-19. And they talked about in the state of Washington, how they're EDTs, lab testing, and also contact tracing in order to sort of contain this pandemic and continue to flatten the curve. And one of the challenges that was brought up in that article was contact tracing. Like, who's going to answer the phone? You know, on your cell phone, do you answer an unknown caller very often? I certainly don't. You know, and then how do you get people to actually cooperate with public health agencies and let them know who your contacts were? So yeah, it definitely is a challenge. Let's talk about that a little bit, go a little bit deeper in that. So it sounds like the process is that some health care entity like a laboratory reports a case to the health department, and that would include the test results that, you know, this person had a positive COVID-19 PCR result, for example, along with the patient name. And, well, I don't know. What else gets reported? How much information does the public health department actually get on these cases? Well, it's my favorite answer in public health reporting is it depends. <laughs> so it really depends on the state. But in general, you know, states want age, sex, date of birth, race and ethnicity. For some tests like blood lead, they want employer information. You know, it can just vary a ton. And that's actually one of the big challenges in public health reporting from the laboratory perspective, especially in the reference lab industry, is that we don't always get this information that the states want or require, and yet we're still obligated to report that. So in a lot of instances, we we place a lot of resources into sort of getting that information from our clients so that we can 
then reported to the state. How does that work? Pick a particularly challenging one, like uh, patient's employer information. The hospital where the patient's test was ordered probably didn't record the patient's employer. So even the hospital doesn't know. And then they send the test to a lab here in Salt Lake City. They're certainly not sharing that information with us. What do you do? What does your department do to track that info down? Well, we have processes where we can fax clients or send messages through our electronic interface to get that information from them. But, you know, as you can guess, it it doesn't always happen because a lot of times even the draw site doesn't even know that information. A lot of times the health department themselves has to, you know, get that result and find that information for themselves. But yeah, it's, it's a big challenge on the reference lab side for sure. So let's say we've got a positive test result for one of these diseases that are publicly reportable, and we send that on to the state health department in whatever state or city the patient happens to live in, along with uh, some demographic information and whatever we can track down of those items that the state's asking for. What does the state do with it then? Let's say, if, let's say it's a COVID case that, that they want to do follow-up on. So they would use that information first to, to do epidemiology on it. You know, the, the, the who, where, why, what, and how of disease. Uh, they would perform, you know, epidemiological studies on that. Uh, they would also use that information to follow up with the individual, most likely, and ensure that public health interventions are happening. With some diseases, such as tuberculosis, the health department even follows up with the ordering physician to make sure the treatment is taking place according to established guidelines. With some diseases, you know, once the state gets the information and they identify an epidemic, we'll use something that's non-COVID related. They'll do public health interventions on that. I can use a couple of examples if you'd like me to before I left the health department of where that took place. Sure. This instance is a, is a classic textbook example of how public health reporting went right. It was a little bit before I left the Utah County Health Department. The state got a bunch of salmonella results from positive patients. They did their epidemiology, they did their case investigation, found out that all of these people had eaten at a specific restaurant in Utah County during the same time period. So that was when I got involved in environmental health was I was assigned to go out and investigate that restaurant and see what might be the problem. So it took a couple people with me. We did a very thorough inspection of it, and we really couldn't find anything wrong at the time. We couldn't find anything that would lead to a salmonella outbreak. So we we had some discussions among ourselves and our health officer and decided, hey, we need to have all these employees get tested for salmonella because there can be asymptomatic carriers. And at the end of the day, that's what it ended up being. There was an asymptomatic carrier of the exact strain that these other folks had had. That's an example of where public health reporting led to a really good outcome for the community. You know, if if the labs hadn't reported these results to the state, then, you know, we would have never known. We would have never been able to make interventions, and that outbreak could have gone on for a really long time. Also, in our most recent hepatitis A outbreak, it was the same sort of situation. There was some results that came to the state, and upon interviewing those cases, it turned out they were food employees. And so, as luck would have it, they were food employees that were in my jurisdiction. So, I again went out and investigated, spoke with the restaurant management. They excluded those employees, got all the other employees vaccinated, and there was a big PR campaign to make sure anyone that was exposed to these two restaurants could get a vaccination. So, just a couple of examples of what happens to that data you know, after it gets to the state level. Yeah, those are great stories because we sometimes hear about these things in the news. We'll hear that there's been an outbreak of hepatitis A or salmonella, like you say. 
and we might even hear the outcome of of being tied to a restaurant or or whatever. But I don't think most of the public really stops to think what kind of investigation was required to to track all of that down. And it really is, you know, solving a mystery, isn't it? It really is, and there there are a lot of resources that go into it. Public health is one of those things that if you're doing a really good job, nobody even realizes what you're doing. It sort of only comes into play when there's a big problem and then public health, you know, sort of makes the news. Is that discouraging for people who work in public health to realize that you're doing all of this hard work and that your efforts may not be appreciated? In a way, it is nice to stay out of public scrutiny and out of the public eye, but um, it is a little bit frustrating, you know, especially when it comes to funding decisions and lawmaking decisions where, you know, the attitude is, well, there's not really a big problem. Why should we fund public health even more? But, you know, they fail to realize that that's why there's not a big problem is because public health exists. It's sort of like the chicken and the egg. I think we've definitely seen that at both a national and a global level with with COVID. When there's not a big pandemic going on, it's hard politically to to create funding and resources to do pandemic prevention because there's so many other things people are worried about. And then we got caught flat-footed. I want to go back to the HIPAA topic, the privacy topic that you brought up a few mm-hmm. minutes ago. That's an interesting one. If If I were a case investigator at a public health department and I were tracking down, let's say, someone with a you know positive sexually transmitted infection to ask them about their sexual partners so that I could contact them and have them go seek medical care. I would think that would be a tricky conversation. Do patients ever get upset when they discover that you know, a government employee has, has found out this private information? You know, as far as STDs go, I, I don't really know. I haven't been involved in that at all in my public health career. I would imagine that some people would be pretty upset. They go to the doctor, they think all this information is private, and then it turns out it's not. But public health agencies do have processes in place to keep that information just at the health department level. They don't go out and then go spread that to the community. Case in point, you know, if they're doing an HIV report and they're saying, well, there is one person in San Juan County that has HIV, you know, they don't give any other identifiers besides there's just a person just because the population is so low. And if they were to give away race or, you know, ethnicity, that person might be able to be identified. Yeah. So it sounds like confidentiality is taken really, really seriously. It really is. At the last place I worked, Utah County Health Department, the epidemiology office was locked 24-7. The only people that could even go in there were the people working on case management. And that was because they took that privacy pretty seriously. We do have national level health care privacy laws. And this is obviously HIPAA, and it's about 25 years old now. How does HIPAA treat public health reporting? For those of you that don't know on this podcast, I'm sure people are pretty familiar with HIPAA already. But, you know, HIPAA doesn't allow for a covered entity, which a laboratory is, to disclose protected health information without patient consent. But there is sort of a carve out in HIPAA for public health reporting that a covered entity is allowed to report those results to public health authorities that have a legal jurisdiction for getting that information. And that's without patient consent. So HIPAA recognizes that there are certain instances where health information does need to be disclosed and public health reporting is one of those. So it's this interesting trade-off between, you know, public good and and privacy that has to get continuously sort of reassessed. But in in a case like an epidemic, where there's a clear public health interest for everyone to get this under control, that seems to make sense. Do you have a rough sense of what proportion of laboratory tests 
results go to public health? Is it is it half of the data that we produce on a daily basis? Is it a much smaller percentage? I mean, maybe you don't have a number, but do you have a gut feel? It's really hard to say because it depends on a lot of factors. Of the thousands of lab tests that we have, I would say that there are probably hundreds that are reportable. Uh It's not all of them. It's a relatively small percentage. Is it mostly positive results? Mostly it is positive results. You know, in instances such as tuberculosis control, though, they do want negative reporting as well because that's how you can tell that someone is no longer infectious. In the instance of COVID-19, for epidemiology and monitoring purposes, we are sending positives and negatives. And isn't that both for the diagnostic test and the antibody test? At this time, yes, that's what we're doing. The public health agencies, it sounds like, are just trying to get as complete a picture as they can. Yeah. There have been a few onesie twosie agencies that have said, you know, we don't want negatives, so don't send them. But, you know, by and large, we're sending positives and negatives. I'd like to close on a long-term vision question. You've been in and around public health for most of your career here. So you've seen both how it works and maybe where some of the limitations are. If you could redesign the U.S. public health system around disease reporting or epidemic control or anything else, do you you have any sort of wish list of what you would change if you were in charge? That's actually a really difficult thing to say because, you know, I've been on both sides of the fence now. I've been on the public health side and, and now on the industry side. I do think that there are changes that could be made that would be mutually beneficial for both parties. You know, public health is one of those things that's very profoundly local. So a lot of diseases that may be of interest to one jurisdiction, we'll say A1C for for New York, may not be of any interest for other jurisdictions. So I don't know that a national system would really work for the public health side. You know, that being said, being on the laboratory side, it would certainly be nice to have one list of diseases that gets reported to one central place. You know, if we were to be able to just report to CDC and then they could filter that down to the states, I think that would be a lot easier for laboratories. So as far as, you know, redesigning the public health surveillance system, I I think that maybe there could be something that would be mutually beneficial to the labs and the public health agencies that would work. You know, organizations such as CSTE, CDC, and ACLA could be involved in in those discussions. You know, in our day and age of of all our technology we have, you know, I I would think that that there would be some easier and, and better way to do it than what we're doing now. So maybe something around standardizing the the case definitions or the or the mechanisms, those kinds of things? Yeah, I think those things would be incredibly helpful. But you do point out, and I think that's a really important point, public health is a very local activity. And your examples of investigating, you know, restaurant outbreaks, those are obviously a local thing. Yeah. Exactly. And healthcare in general is a very local phenomenon. So, And also the way the legal authority is set up. In the Constitution, you know, if it's not enumerated power in there, it's left up to the states. So the CDC doesn't really have any authority to dictate really anything public health reporting-wise. The one instance is in the CARES Act, which was recently passed in relation to COVID. We're now reporting data to the CDC. But in general, it it is very much a state issue legally. So it would be really tough to sort of change what we're doing now. And you mentioned CSTE a minute ago. Most listeners won't know what that is. But if I've got it right, it's the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists, basically the forum that all the state health departments get together and talk about stuff. Do you see coordination happening among the states? CSTE speaks on behalf of the states, especially during this, this COVID outbreak to sort of send a standardized message out of what the health department wants. 
that's sort of one of the things that they do. And then we've got ACLA on the laboratory side that sort of puts out a standardized message from the laboratory side. So it's kind of interesting to see the interaction of these two agencies. So there is coordination going on, but ultimately every state law is different. Yeah, but it's really funny because I, I was at a conference. I've been in several situations where the question has come up, well, can we just have one standard list of that we send to every everybody and make it easier for everybody? And the, usually the room erupts with laughter <laughs> because everybody knows that that probably isn't going to happen anytime soon. Well, it's job security for folks like you and folks like uh, all of the, the hard workers at our public health agencies. True. Maybe the more important point here is COVID and pandemics are a time when we really need to appreciate the hard work of all these public health agencies working in the background. You know, it's not glamorous, it's not in the spotlight, but without them, we would have far less possibility to get a handle on things like this. Exactly. You know, when I left public health and came to ARUP, I was thinking, well, geez, I probably won't be involved in a whole lot of uh, actual public health activities anymore. But just being involved with a company that's, you know, been on the forefront of of testing and also being involved in interacting with a lot of public health agencies has been really satisfying. Well, thank you for all your hard work in that area. And thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Sam. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not for profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more Lab Mind podcasts at www.arup.utah.edu or subscribe to Lab Mind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.